Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Nice. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. And I am your other host, Susan Fox. And with us today is the author of Updraft from Tor Books, also the author of Cloudbound. Fran Wild, welcome to the show. Timely greeting to everyone. We are so happy to have you back. It's been uh, it's been a full year, hasn't it? It's been a full year, and it's great to be back. Thank you guys so much for having me. So much has happened since then. Yeah. Like an Andre Norton Award for Young Adult uh, Fiction, for one thing. Congratulations. Yes. Thank you very much. The Nebula nomination. Susan Schwartz told me a joke. Um, How many Nebula nominees does it take to change a light bulb? How many? It's an honor just to be allowed near a light bulb. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how she told us she, you know, what happened. That's so great. That's absolutely true. It is. It was such a great honor to be on that list and be among those incredible authors. Um, and I, was, I was amazed to be there, and it was it was really really exciting to be part of that conversation. It was a pretty high powered group. Yeah. Yeah, you were you were in good company. The um, Hugo nominations. Hugo nominations are also incredible, and I was so thrilled to see Nora win because the the fifth season was one of my favorite books from last year. I had a lot of favorite books. Last year was last year was really um, one of those years that you feel lucky to be a reader Mm -hmm. as well as as well as a writer because it was just so rich. It was. It was really. It was really one of the one of the better years in in a while, Uh, and. It's it's a cliche to say it's it was lovely just to be asked or it's an honor just to be asked. But it really is because uh, the the making the cut when the other books are that good. Yeah, and it just <laughs> saying something and it uh, uh, it it puts you in the rarefied air. And that's exactly where you belong. <laughs> <laughs> and we're friendly oh, with Lawrence Sean, so you know yeah. <laughs> we didn't know who to root for, really. Well, oh well, I'm sure that I'm sure that even though your loyalties were tested, you you chose 
you know, the, the best for each category. And, and, and I, you know what you can, you guys can say totally that you love everyone equally and I will support <laughs> well, you. We don't it. vote in SIFWA. So you know, yeah, well, there you go. Say. There you go. So tell us about the Compton Creek award. Is it Compton the, Creek? Compton, Compton Crook. I'm, my, I'm bad, bad eyes here. Compton Crook uh, award. The Compton, uh, the Compton Crook Stephen Tall award is awarded each year by the Baltimore Science Fiction Society for the best first novel in science fiction or fantasy. And um, after the Nebula nomination and the Norton, I found out that I was also nominated um, for the Compton Crook as well with amazing writers, um, including Cat Rambo and um, Ferret Steinmetz and my friend Josh. Um, and this was just, it was, it was sort of overwhelming to be part of that as well. Um, the award ceremony was part of the opening ceremony for the 50th anniversary of Balticon, um, which has had an enormously, um, successful history across 50 years. And they, for this particular event, invited back as many of their guests of honor they, as they could, and their guest of their guest of honor for this year was George R. R. Martin. Mm. So, what they do with the Compton Crook Award winner is that they bring you in and treat you like a guest of honor, and it's meant to be sort of an introduction to that process. And the previous year's Compton Crook Award winner is your mentor for the weekend. So wow. when they let me know that I won, it came with um, a hotel room and an invitation to come down to the ceremony and an invitation to meet George R. R. Martin, which I'd met him before. He'd shot me with a, um, a, a ray gun at a, a different con and I'd met him <laughs> times. But um, this was the first time that I'd gotten a chance to really talk to him. And my the previous year's Compton Crook Awardee is um, Alexander Duncan who wrote mm-hmm. these wonderful YA books, um, one of which is releasing next year. And I'm going to get the titles for you right now. But she wrote um, Salvage, which was nominated and won the Compton Crook. Um, and she was absolutely wonderful. She introduced me to people. She sort of showed me the ropes. And um, I spent the whole weekend kind of hanging out with her and hanging out with all the guests of honor. And um, my friend um, who is on city council in Baltimore heard about all this and decided to ask the city council if they would pass some resolutions welcoming all of the guests of honor to the city, congratulating Ken Stanley Robinson, who was also an awardee, and um, congratulating Balticon on their 50th year. So the city council showed up and gave these plaques, which was really cool. All of this was really um, amazing. And that happened at, um, on Memorial Day weekend. So it was, I went straight sort of from the Nebula weekend to the, the Memorial Day weekend in Baltimore. It's hard to go home and do laundry after that. <laughs> it was um, after, after I came home, I was kind of wondering what would, what would happen next and, you're right. It was laundry. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, the book in question, the new one, Cloudbound. Yes. Uh, when I've got a galley copy, a galley proof uh, uh, in my hand. When does this thing come out? 
It just came. Oh, it out. just it, came out. It just it's came September. out because yeah. I because I read it. I raced through it. I raced through it twice just to get all the every bit. It's so it's rich as plum cake, and I wanted to just oh, love every raisin, you know. And then <laughs> then you know the minute I'd gone through it twice, then I found it in the Kindle store, so I downloaded it. Now I have two copies. Cloudbound came out September twenty seventh. Mm-hmm. And um, it is available everywhere. The wonderful people at Audible did me the favor of giving me a new narrator hmm. because I, uh-huh. I switched POVs. I switched points uh-huh. of view. Um, right. Kirit will be back. I have promised everybody that she's coming back. But this story really needed to be told from a different point of view. And that is a tough switch for readers to make. But um, Audible was um, very, very helpful, and they found me a new narrator who is Rajiv Ullman. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the cover art from Tor reflects the change as well. The, the main character is Nat, and you see him on the cover of the new book. Um, and you see Kirit in the background. And a lot of people's favorite characters are still there. Um, I, haven't, I haven't killed them off yet. But the uh, the the really exciting part was it gave me the opportunity to tell a different story in this world that was related to the earlier story. Mm-hmm. Well, I of course it all knits together, and it knits yeah. it knits together like bone sutures. <laughs> it oh. is so. I mean, this. Uh, if you're listening, it's to a this, different voice. It is. So well, it I'm has sure to be voice because it's very insistent, and mm-hmm. Nats is a bit more speculative. Well, Kirit is also just emotionally not available through mm-hmm. most of the the events of this story. So she yeah. couldn't. She she just wasn't yeah. in in shape to talk to anybody. No, but she still she still had agency, and she was one of the things that fascinated me about the development of, of these two characters in particular. Because I've talked about this a little bit that when I when I wrote Updraft, I knew that it could have been told from either perspective. It could have been told from Nat's perspective or Kirit's. And I really felt like Updraft was Kirit's story. Mm-hmm. And-, and Cloudbound became Nat's story um, because of what we wanted, what I wanted to investigate, because it's about leadership. Yes. And, and Kirit is a leader, absolutely, in, in action all the time. But she doesn't really want to be a leader. She doesn't want to take the risk of being used. Um, she, she really wants to go her own way because that's what Kirit does. Mm-hmm. And Nat, on the other hand, desperately wants to be a leader. And at first, he's not really sure what that means. And he, he quickly finds out exactly how much responsibility that is. And, Very he, and he's not completely sure he's happy with it. Because uh, uh, everybody wants to use him. Yeah. <laughs> and he can't get a straight answer out of anybody. Because everybody's got their own, their own. It's it's the culture of the uh, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, uh, the culture of the city is not much mm-hmm. different from the culture of a science fiction convention where everybody <laughs> has their own agenda and wants their own department taken well, care of. Well, in, in Updraft, <laughs> it's pretty clearly established that everybody is sort of jockeying for literal position on the towers. Yes, mm-hmm. and in a society that is used to doing that. Um, lobbying for your own agenda is not uncommon. 
Well, yeah, yeah, it yeah. could be. It's, but uh, Nat's, Nat's an idealist. Nat really yeah. has this sense that everything's going to be okay and that, you know, his his point of view is right and it's mm-hmm. the right one. And, and you kind of got to love that, but you kind of want to shake him. Yeah, sometimes. Well, but the more <laughs> he learns about the world and their place yeah. in it, the the harder it is to to keep on believing everything's going to be okay. But somehow he does. Yeah, Doran, the uh, uh, the leader of of which tower was it? Was it Doran is from Grigret, um, which is one of the southern towers. It's a very uh, wealthy uh-huh. tower. They um, he he was in fact the um, person that Ezrit was um, in. Uh, she was going to apprentice Kirit uh, yes. too. Yes, and that would have worked out very differently for Kirit if that had gone forward. But yeah. Doran has, you know, particular loyalties. He was very close to the spire at one point, and he's, you know, really determined to survive and to make sure that his tower comes out on top, no matter what. And uh, he's willing to bend the rules and ignore some of the things he sees in order to make that happen. Yes, but not all. He, he is not. He, he does. He's a complicated figure. He does have limits. There are certain lines he won't cross. Yes, and uh, and it makes him kind of a gray figure, which you'll find. Mm-hmm. You, not everybody's black and white. The bone towers in which everyone lives, high above the clouds, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and flight is the primary uh, means of conveyance, except for the bridges uh, that yes. go back and forth between the towers, where you know. Pe- yes. Where not everybody can fly, but most can, and uh, and getting your your getting your wings is like a kid getting their driver's license. <laughs> it just yes. seemed like such a familiar Arco, scenario. <laughs> a bit like getting a driver's license. It's a little bit more like getting a Coast Guard license. Um, in in that a driver's license is very linear and delineated along roads, um, and in flying and in the Coast Guard test, you have to be able to determine right away based on um, the the direction of the wind mm-hmm. and um, where people are in relation to you rather than where you are in relation to the road. So it's much more of a communal experience. And uh, you communicate in flight by whistles, you know. Often, uh, yes. uh, In different tunes, really, you know. Because the whistles carry further than a voice can. Yes. So... It's there's. I've been practicing whistling ever since I read that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It is it is something that, as you can hear from certain Wi-Fi exchanges, you can lose certain words um, Mm -hmm. in in the in the distances between people. But if you're doing short whistle bursts instead, then then it's the information is tighter, and it's sent faster. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the information on they they communicate by uh, sending little inscribed chips of bone on tied to the legs of of little birds, uh, whipperlings. Quite often, usually, yes. Um, quite often at the beginning of Cloudbound, um, the traditional form of messaging is still in place, which is um, sending whipperling messages. If something is very important and needs to go to, from tower to tower, they send it by Kavik, mm-hmm. which is um, a, a corvid um, uh-huh. or a corvid av- adjunct, much like a crow. Um, the Kaviks are much, bigger. Much larger bird. 
Yes. They can, uh, yep. a cavic with its wings open will fill a doorway. Yes. Um, a, a bone eater will fill a, a, a tear, but a cavic, a cavic is, is a crow sized bird. It's, okay. It's, yeah. A bone eater is a bit more monstrous. Do they eat whole bones or are they just picking at the, <laughs> at the marrow? Um, so one of the things that I, I love to do is I looked, I love to, when I'm building a world and when I'm building, um, monsters within a world is I like to combine elements of the familiar mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. a more monstrous form. So the sky mouse are cephalopods of a sort, but I've turned them invisible and made them enormous and hungry and given them rows and rows of glass teeth. And those um, glass teeth given, just gave me the <laughs> nightmares and given them the power of flight. Um, for cloudbound, one of the things that is happening is certain um, denizens of the deep within the clouds have started to come up because, in particular, the sky mouths are no longer keeping them down below. They're not on patrol. They're not, you know, dangerous anymore. So one of the things that is coming up more often is called a bone eater. And the bone eaters are birds, nominally. They're enormous. And they are related to um, something that you can find in our world called a lammergeier. And a lammergeier is a vulture with Mm. about a nine-foot wingspan that takes its prey up about half a mile and drops it on the rocks in order to get the marrow out of the bone. It breaks the bone when it drops the the prey onto the rocks. And I thought, what could be worse for a society built on towers of living bone than to have something that actually eats the marrow out of bones? So I took this Lammergeier, which if you look them up or if you look, I wrote a, a column on the arch doorway about um, Lammergeiers. They are, they look like dragons. They look like feathered dragons. They are the most exquisite murder birds out there. And I took that and I made it much, much bigger and fiercer so that the claws are, you know, just enormous mm-hmm. and, and it has everything serrated... about them is just, you know, big bird times a mm-hmm. hundred and then I made them very angry and a little bit crazy and all black. And, and this is, sort so of this is big bird, but not in the uh, Albert Spinney sense. No, this <laughs> big bird in the um, really, really scary, don't want to meet him in a dark alley sort of sense. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, what happens, but the, the Kirit and Nat are looking for something in the first chapter mm-hmm. and they come across a bone eater. Um, and have to escape it. And um, the, the the story is so densely packed. I mean, when you pick up when you pick up your books, and this I suspect this is probably true of all of your books, uh, y- you are immediately uh, given the task of absorbing and sorting out just. A, an enormous, dense cloud of information having to do with this world, and and you're as a reader, you're re- really given no quarter at all. <laughs> it's like eating. Pie. I, I hope that's all right. I I really do enjoy trusting my readers a lot that they are going to be able to make the connections. And that does work. I see what you did with the cloud 
Uh-huh. So. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's extremely dense stuff. I mean, it's like eating pound cake. It's delicious, <laughs> but you really have to go slowly at first, yeah. you know, especially on the first chapter, because there's so much to absorb, and you're really uh, you're really depending on the reader to be. You're stopping and and looking around and paying attention uh, before they move on, and uh, it, it's not it's not necessarily all laid out for you. So it's um, but the delightful thing about that is that it makes the world so deeply textured, and you don't waste any time uh, introducing the reader to that texture, and it uh, uh, it makes for such a rich experience in the end when you're reading this whole thing and you're really starting to get into the you really get into the heads of the the characters and what all of this stuff actually means to them in emotional terms because you have a context mm-hmm. and we don't know Thank how you. how people got up there in the first place and that's part of the mystery of it all isn't it yes yeah and it's it will it will be revealed more uh, as we move on, apparently, I, I guess we've gotten a few clues, and I'm not going to spoil this book by mentioning no. any of them. Yeah, she told no, me fair. she shouldn't have told me, but <laughs> she did. And, and, and it is wild. It's it's uh, what the the second half of the book, the revelations in the second half of the book, which I have not read yet. I've only read the first half. Are astounding to say the least. And you've taken you've taken the story in uh, you've you've really done your job. You've taken Thank the story you. in such an alarmingly bizarre direction, and yet it makes oh, perfect no. sense. It may, it all fits. You know, uh, usually some usually a writer can either do characters or they can do world building, but God, can they do both? Well, yeah. <laughs> this time we're 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 actually seeing yes. Thank you so much. And that's, that's you know, for, comes from the heart. Oh, gosh. Well, thank you very much. That is, that is wonderful to hear. Um, it, I, have, I have a lot of love for these characters. And um, having just finished the first, ra- the first draft of um, what will be hopefully called Horizon, um, I am... It, to to say goodbye to them, so I'm not going to not immediately. But uh, um, seeing seeing where they end up, where they finish the arc, has been has been the project of this past fall. What does a horizon even mean to them? <laughs> that will bewilder them terribly. <laughs> yes, well, it's I'm not going to spoil anything. Everybody's got to got to catch up and read Cloudbound, so they'll be ready for Horizon. I guess they'd better. It's, yeah, it's um. One of the things that I enjoy about enjoyed about Cloudbound and Updraft both is the as I was saying the richness of the environment, the detail with which uh, um, you created the world in which these characters live. Uh, it is and it is uh, it, you look at this slice of time in which these characters live, and you think. How in the heck did they end up like this in the first place? And of course, mm-hmm. that is the that is part of where the story is going. You know, exploring back and finding 
the roots, the base, the basis of uh, everything that they do. But uh, every, absolutely everything about their environment, down to the tiniest detail, affects their lives in profound ways. And uh, that I, that contributes, I think, to the to the density that uh, that we are presented as readers. You know, from from page one. Uh, you spend. I think that that when you live in a society like they do, where it, where it is very much on the edge, and one bad move can sort of throw you into the clouds. Mm-hmm. And where everything is very valuable and 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 very valued um, because of that, it's it is you you really focus very hard on what you have, and I think they do that. The um, they really do live on the edge, and and, and the exactly how on the edge they are, you don't realize until you get into cloudbound. I mean, you, if you've if you've read the first book, Updraft, you can see a lot of it, but you don't really have a full appreciation of it until uh, until you start getting about a third of the way into uh, Cloudbound. It's I didn't know it could get. Uh, I didn't know your storyline could get that uh, that profound with respect. Mm. It was. It's this this. I'm just sort of foaming at the mouth here <laughs> because, I'm, because I'm so impressed with how well the story and the characters intertwine that they're the fate of the society and how it affects the, each individual character. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you. So, so mothers and children are a, are a major theme in this. Uh, tell us about your children. Um, well, I don't, I don't talk about the urchin very much. Um, but it is, it, it's an important theme for me. I think that, um, when you see your, when you see, um, science fiction and fantasy engage family and engage, um, that particular level of complexity, you get a very rich pattern. Um, especially when some of the, the children are, are teenagers and, and in that, you know, young adult group and the adults are much older, um, everybody has wants and needs and you don't, you don't see that a lot. You don't see ambitious parents, um, who also care for their kids you don't see um, kids who care. I mean, you see a lot of kids who care very much for their parents, but their parents are often absent or dead. And I wanted to write something that had a, a very um, central young person as a character again, but who still had a good, you know, had an interesting layered relationship with, with their parents. Um, and for Nat, Nat's, Nat's, father um was part of the original resistance to the spire and um he's gone but elna nat's mother um the first time you meet nat in updraft he is climbing up the up the up the densira tower behind her and he cares very very much about his mom um to the point of of being a little overprotective of her and she is highly independent and um, a very much a, a highly competent person on her in her own right, 
Um, so it's, it's an interesting dynamic, but she's also been kind of the stabilizing force for both Kirit and Nat for both books. Um, she was the, the, the mother in place for mm-hmm. Kirit while Kirit's own mother was, was off becoming one of the more successful traders in the city. It's the breadwinner. Mm-hmm. And, and Elna was, um, and remains the, the person whose voice that, both Kirit and Nat hear um, singing them to sleep at night, mm-hmm. even if she's not there. A lot of young adult books uh, focus so much on the uh, the coming of age issue, uh, mm-hmm. you know, for for the the protagonist that the uh, the adults sort of fade into the background, and that really didn't happen. There's there's something to be said for a larger cast of characters um, if if it can be played right and these books are um, on on the edge of of young adult and on the edge of adult fiction as well mm-hmm. um, they've they've been written in the gap between the two categories and I was that was part of the reason why I was really honored by the fact that I was nominated for both the Nebula and the Norton I thought that was um, now that that the, is an interesting crossover effect. Yeah, it was. It was. I, you know, it was risky too, because it could have very easily been people deciding, "Oh well, I'm not going to read that because I don't know where it belongs." Yes. Yeah, so, and uh, what instead, is this? everybody took a mm-hmm. real risk and said, "You know, yeah. that's odd and unusual. Maybe I'll try it," and that was fantastic. Yeah, I can see the argument. I mean, I can see the uh, the the concern that the book might be considered neither fish nor fowl. But uh, <laughs> what I what I loved was that um, my I have some younger readers who are in high school and who've read the book, and then a year later they like you came back and read it again, and um, they they realized some things about what was happening in the narrative that they hadn't seen the first time they enjoyed the story the first time, but they didn't realize that all the politics that were going on. And that was one of my hopes was that the second read would be stronger and more interesting than the first read. And I hope that continues with Cloudbound as well. Oh, I think it will. <laughs> Cause there's, there's every something behind every door. <laughs> Literally. Literally. And, <laughs> and in some cases, you have to peel back part of the wall to get at it. Quiet, you. <laughs> but this is not your only series, she said. Sneaking, this is not. Sneaking is into correct. another universe for a moment. There are gems. There is a gem universe, and I have um, out in for public viewing one short story. Mm-hmm. called The Topaz Marquis, and that is at Benicis the Skies. Um, and Benicis the Skies has been an incredible host for me. They also have a short story set in the Bone universe called mm. Bent the Wing, Dark the Cloud. Um, but they hosted the first, Scott Andrews, who is the editor of Benicis the Skies, hosted the first Gem Universe short story. And then I started writing him another one. But it got much longer than expected, and um, the Tor.com um, publishing arm asked if they could turn it into a novella and print it as a book. Mm-hmm. So they did that this spring, and they these gorgeous books with Tommy Arnold covers. Um, Tommy Arnold is the artist who did the covers for Updraft and Cloudbound and will hopefully be doing an, another cover for me. Um, also did the cover for The Jewel in Her Lapidary, which is a, a book within a book. 
um, about the history of the Jeweled Valley, which is where all of the gems come from. Um, and not all gems come from the Jeweled Valley, but the, the ones that we're writing about do. And um, that allowed me to make a very um, expansive origin story for a series of um, linked short stories and novellas that I will be working on for some time. Now, what is a jewel if one is a lapidary? And who's really in charge here? Well, that is a very good question. I wanted to write about um, power balances. And in The Jewel in Her Lapidary, the jewels are the ruling faction who govern the Jeweled Valley. But they must govern in tandem with a lapidary who has the power of hearing and communicating and controlling the gems. And the gemstones of the Jeweled Valley are semi um, – I don't want to give away too much, but they, they have some powers to amplify emotions and to control people's minds and, and ways of seeing things. So there are gems, depending on the way that they are cut and handled and the, and the sounds that they make and amplify, um, that can keep people from seeing the jeweled court. Um, there are gems that can protect um, the Jeweled Valley from invaders. And at the beginning of the story, the power imbalance between the, je the jewels and the lapidaries has become so bad um, because over time the jewels gained more power politically and the lapidaries became a little bit more um, out of power, which is very dangerous for them but they haven't quite realized it because they're so concerned with maintaining the, the power of the gems that one of the lapidaries rebels and betrays the jewel's court. And that's where the story opens. My goodness. And it turns out that the story opens on a moment where the two individuals in this power balance, one jewel and one lapidary, both young, the least trained and the least capable of all of their kind are the only ones that can save the kingdom. Because, of course, that's where dynamic tension comes from. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I seem to like to write at the point where the society is sort of on the edge of things. And this, this community in particular is very much on the edge of things. If you read the Topaz Marquis first, that's set at a very different time period. Um, it's focused on one gem, but the jewel in her lapidary will tell you where some of those gems came from. Maybe I should read that, huh? <laughs> so I read the jewel <laughs> in the lapidary and going, I got to read more of this. <laughs> I feel like I've been just dropped in the middle of things. Yes, yes, but it is, um, it's, it's a lot of fun to be writing in that world as well. I really, um, I like keeping a, a, a couple of different types of stories spinning at all times. And you, so what's next? <laughs> I am... You're working um, on Horizons. I'm, work, I'm finishing Horizon. I'm waiting for edits on that. Mm -hmm. I am working on um, a, a young adult novel, and I'm working on a middle grade novel. And I'm working on some Gem Universe stories as well. 
and eventually I will finish the adult science fiction story that I have backburnered for a little bit in order to finish these other things. And when you say adult science fiction, it's it's a uh, you're already straddling the line. So yeah. how what is it about this that differentiates it for you that makes it adult science fiction? Um. I think well one of one of the best definitions of YA that I have ever heard is um, E. C. Myers, who, who wrote Quant, uh, Fair Coin and Quantum Coin, um, has has sort of defined YA as a young person discovers the world around them and realizes that it's different from what they were taught, and goes out into the world and changes it. And the world changes them as well. Mm. And I think that is a really exquisite definition of um, young adult fiction. And there are, you know, many, many more things that happen in any young adult novel, but this is sort of the guts of it. Um, I see that happening in a lot of adult science fiction and fantasy as well, in particular in the cyberpunk novels of the Mm -hmm. 80s and 90s. But I think that also you see um, a lot more of the the uh, heavy political themes and high tech um, exploration and space opera. And I love a good space opera. And while those are great, it all comes back to uh, how the how the experience changes the person who lives through it. And I don't think that that can be restricted to any one age or, or any one genre. I think that we're all writing about change for each of our characters. And when you have a char- character that has agency, that makes decisions, mm-hmm. that change is inevitable, no matter what. doesn't have to be a young person, does it? No, not at all. I think that it's very interesting to see some of the older characters coming forward as well. I really love um, so many of of the stories that are being told this year, especially. But I mean, if you look at Anne Leckie's um, ancillary books, that character, the, the character that she's been writing about Breck is actually a very old soul. Hmm. I just can't help thinking about what would happen if Ilna got her sight back. Ah, wouldn't that be interesting? One of the things that, that really, um, in the back of Kirit's brain that didn't, didn't get on the page very much, but it, it did sort of make a slight appearance is when, when Kirit learned about the, um, the power of the Nightwings to, to do what they could do in Updraft. And I don't want to spoil anybody who hasn't read it, but, um, when she learned about that, one of her first thoughts was of Elna and thinking, oh, now she can fly. Yeah, yeah, I guess she could. But um, Elna has different superpowers as well. <laughs> she is she is an incredibly um, centering figure, and when she what she, what she does instead is she gets the the power of her voice back, which mm. I think is also important because she has really important things to say, and nobody's been listening to her for a very long time. So I noticed that. that the was, mom uh, voice. Yes. Mom <laughs> ain't happy and nobody happy. It is. I mean, she's, she's, she has, she has been, um, doing a lot of work as a, as, as a parent. Mm-hmm. And she steps back into society 
in this book and says her piece and everybody listens to her and she actually really shifts awareness with what she has to say. And it's uh, her, her sight actually is while she is sky blind, Mm -hmm. uh, her sight is not gone away. It's just changed. Um, No, she is, she is going blind. No, I mean, I know physically she's going blind, but she has vision beyond sight. Emotional. She does. Emotional vision. She's also um, very capable. And and I I think that, you know, one of the things that I've talked about a bit um, recently, especially, is that I write characters who have um, disabilities, but I write them as very capable characters with other um, narrative arcs than just about their disability. So Elna's, Elna's an exquisite seamstress. She can repair a wing set um, without mm-hmm. necessarily seeing it. Um, she has so much going for her, and her sky blindness is um, something that is part of her and part of who she is, but it's only a part, and there's so much more to her, and that's something that I really love. And that's going to mean a lot to some of the readers. I think I hope so. I mean, I, it means a lot to me. Yeah. All of the characters have, uh, all of the characters in your books have this kind of depth. I mean, even Mock. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, oh, this, this, this singer. He, he, I love uh, Mock. Yeah, he was, he was born in the spire, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah, and, and he uh, he has, he's got a sister. Yeah, twins. And, uh, his sister is, uh, uh, somewhat more reserved than Mock, but really only when you compare her to Mock. <laughs> so the two of them together uh, uh, are quite the handful. And uh, I mean, Mock is just a really, he, he's, I get the sense that he was, he was created as a, a sort of an auxiliary character, a bit of color. Uh, but boy, he's, He's kind of taken be, over, hasn't yeah. he? Yeah, he's rich, <laughs> enough, he's rich um, enough to be a character in his own right. The twins have really always been a big part of the story because they're they're the next generation. They're the mm-hmm. next generation of singers. They have been raised in the spire, and now that the spire is gone, um, they really have to adjust to the outside world very quickly. And Mock isn't doing so hot on that count. Yeah, he keeps, not so he hot. He's coming up with schemes, and they keep backfiring on him. Yeah, he's just constantly getting himself into some he kind really of a does. scrape. But um, uh, but he's also the, somehow he's also seems to find himself in the center of whatever's going on. He never gives up, and that's one of the reasons why I love him. Yeah. Um, he also thinks of himself kind of as a master spy, although it doesn't really come across because we're not looking at the thing from, from his point of view. He loves to know things mm-hmm. and he idolizes Nat, um, which Nat doesn't realize, but, um, the things and, and the things that Nat says to him really do leave a mark with him. So, um, but he's old enough to kind of resent that as well. <laughs> yeah. It's like... I I know you're pretty amazing and I'm trying to be amazing too and you're kind of crowding my space. <laughs> totally. And he doesn't like to be coddled and he doesn't like to be talked down to. Yeah. So 
I, I really like that kind of character. I like that, you know, he's, he's, he's trying to exceed expectations, but he's also exceeding boundaries at the same time. And that's tough. Yeah, it is. And, um, I think if you wanted to write another, uh, <laughs> book in the series and, uh, and have him as a central character, it, I think it would be a lot of fun. Oh gosh, I would love that. Wouldn't that be something? Well, let's see what happens I mean, after, in the after next book. After you complete and... <laughs> the, the, cur- the current story arc, then you've got him. Well, we it, hope. It, it makes my heart really glad that you guys are, are super excited about this because that means that, you know, it, one of the things when you write a series is that you, the first one comes out and it's it's a big deal. And everybody's really excited. And then the second one comes out and everybody's really excited. But there's some hesitance because they, nobody um, nobody wants to see it end. Nobody wants the changes that are required to um, make a series really interesting. Like, um, I mean, not nobody. Some people um, are hesitant to start the next book because they want all of them at the same time so that they can read them all at once. And um, it's really, really important to have that support all the way through mm-hmm. for a series like this. Um, and so I'm, I'm delighted to hear that, that you guys are, are on board and ready for the ride. Well, and it's, um, I think a, a large part of that comes from uh, the uncertainty as to whether or not the author can carry uh, mm-hmm. I, it, what what you have is uh, you have uh, 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 well, it a is a mi- first a novel, so we don't know well, what yeah. to expect yet. Well, it, mm-hmm. you, but you have a mythos that's so rich and so solid and so integrated that you could literally take any one of these characters and turn them around and turn them into another book, and and just keep going like that. Uh, you, <laughs> could, you could be you might end up writing these books for for another ten years. That would be a lot of fun. I would really like that. And if not, um, if not novels, it would be really fun to write some more short stories in the world. And with me, sometimes short stories tend to lead to novels. And how does that happen? I mean, you, you plan out a short story and then it gets Kinda deeper and going, deeper until it just takes over your life or what? It all starts out completely innocently. <laughs> I mean, it was this, this series used to be a short story about a knife fight in a, a winged knife fight in a wind tunnel. That's all it was. Holy and, moly. <laughs> now you know where I'm, where, cause that short story ended up in the middle of updraft. Uh-huh. Sure did. Yeah. So, um, there was about 30,000 words of John's story actually that how John learned to be an artifacts. John is one of the characters mm-hmm. in um, Cloudbound. And there is a, a short story about how he came by his toolbox mm. that is coming out in light speed next week. It is reprinted from an anthology that came out in 2012 called Impossible Futures. It's the first short story mm-hmm. that ever appeared in this world. Um, and the story is called A Moment of Gravity Circumscribed. And that is the story of a very young John, um, very clumsy young man who drops something and it breaks and he has to go below the clouds with a scavenger to go find it. Um, and he discovers things and it's how he gains um, something that's going to be very important to him in this book. But there was another 30,000 words that I wrote um, where John learns his trade as an artifacts. And that was meant to be the, the next book in the series. And I realized that that wasn't the story that I wanted to tell, that I really want to tell Nat's story first. 
So someday you'll see more John. I'm looking forward to that very much. <laughs> Fran Wild, author of Updraft and its new sequel from Tor Books called Cloudbound. Thank you so much for joining us for this evening's episode of The Event Horizon. Oh, gosh. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you guys. You heading to episode 151 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for October 15th, 2016. This marks our return from our hiatus. Your hosts have been Susan Fox and Gene Turnbow, and our guest this evening has been Fran Wilde, the award-winning author of science fiction novels Updraft and its sequel Cloudbound, the first two books in the Bone Universe series from Tor Books. This episode will air again on Sunday, October 16th, 2016 at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, and two more times on the following Tuesday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific and 7 a.m. Eastern. Once all of the air times have passed, you will find this episode and others on iTunes, Stitcher, and on our own website at kryptonradio.com as podcasts. If you are an artist, writer, actor, or other creator, and you would like to appear as a guest on the Event Horizon, please contact our production manager, Kat Carter, at catcarter at kryptonradio.com. Krypton Radio is substantially listener-supported, and if you enjoyed hearing the Event Horizon this week, please consider becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash kryptonradio. We're thrilled that this is our 151st episode, and your contributions make this show possible. Just five green pieces of paper a month. That's all we ask. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by science fiction illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster Larry Niven. This program is copyright 2016 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.